pray together. Father, we pray that you would now convince us by your word what the world is, what you created it to be, and convince us, Lord, who we are and what you intended humanity to be as those you made in your image and likeness. Lord, cause us to understand with with new depth and intensity the reality that this world was created as your cosmic temple, the place where you would be present with, known by, worshipped and served by those whom you have created to know you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to think of ourselves as those who are your royal priesthood, a kingdom and priests whom Christ has made to bring you honor, to serve you, to fill the world with your praise. And Lord, we pray that this time in your word this morning would help us to understand how every aspect of our lives is a spiritual service of worship as we seek to be living sacrifices, as we are both the sacrifice that is offered and the priest who is offering the sacrifice for the glory of your great name. Lord, we pray that through all this you would be conforming us to the image of Christ, transforming our minds and keeping us from being conformed to the world. So we commit all these requests to you, Lord, and pray that you'd bless us now. In Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open to Exodus chapter 25, and we're going to look at those things that the author of Hebrews said that he could not deal with in detail. So we'll be looking at Exodus 25 through 31 uh, this morning. And this is a large section of text. We will not go verse by verse through uh, chapters 25 through 31, but I do hope to be able to draw your attention to those things that I think bring out uh, the truth, the meaning, the structure of the text, so that as you read it for yourself in coming days, you'll be more able to to know where you are and, and what you're looking at and what you should be taking away from the text. So here's the big idea of this sermon. The big idea is that we're reading in this passage, Exodus 25 through 31, the instructions for the tabernacle, and this is what the world was created to be. The world was created to be a place where God is present with his people, known by his people, worshipped and served by his people. And we call such places temples or tabernacles. The world was created as God's cosmic dwelling place where he would be worshipped by those made in his his image. So this is what the world is for, and this is who people are. We are those who are made in God's image to know him, to worship and serve him in his temple that is all creation. So just just to briefly preview what I'm going to try to show... I think that Moses, the guy that wrote the creation narrative, Genesis 1 and 2, intended for his audience, as he wrote Exodus 25 through 31, to pick up on 
the correspondences between the creation narrative and these instructions for the tabernacle, and he meant for us to draw the conclusion, oh, the tabernacle is like a redo of creation on a smaller scale. So God builds creation, and he puts the man and the woman in the garden, which is like the holy of holies, and they transgress, and they're driven out. And now it's like God says, okay, let's try this, this again. And so he's going to give Israel this tabernacle, and he's going to put the high, the high priest into uh, the holy place where he has access to God in the holy of holies. And tragically, just as Adam and Eve failed and were driven out, Israel is going to fail, and they will be driven out of God's presence. But nevertheless, um, God is still after the same purpose. And so just as we move from Eden to the tabernacle, in the New Testament, we read about how Jesus makes his people the new temple. He says, I will build my church, and he's the descendant of David, and, and that descendant of David, 2 Samuel 7 promises, was going to build a house for God's name. And Jesus is building the house for God's name that is the church. And thus the Apostle Paul can say things like, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then ultimately, this is going forward to the new creation, which in, in the book of Revelation, when John describes the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, it is a perfect cube, and those are the dimensions of the holy of holies. It's as though the, the city of God in the new creation is the holy of holies where God is directly accessed. So this is a, this is a, a, a theme that goes from creation to new creation that we're looking at here today, and we're looking at the tabernacle installment, which is also to inform who we are as a church and who we're going to be in the new, new creation, because this is where we live. We live in God's cosmic temple, and this is who we are. We are those made in God's image to know him, to worship and serve him in everything that we do. So let me, as we start, let me draw your attention to some features of this narrative that, that will recall for us the, the creation narrative. But, but first, briefly, let me just summarize what we've seen to this point in the Exodus. So we saw in Exodus 1 through 19 how God brought the people out of Egypt, which was like them being dead. They were slaves. They were down in Egypt. And God sent his servant Moses to them, who spoke the word of God to them. And, and the word of God gave them life and hope and liberated them from their slavery. And, and God defeated the powers of Egypt and brought his people out baptizing them in the Red Sea as they passed through those waters of judgment that closed over their enemies. And then he brought them through the wilderness where he gave them manna from heaven and water from the rock out to Mount Sinai where he told Moses he would bring them. And then he descended upon Mount Sinai and spoke the Ten Commandments to them. And, and we noted how there are ten times in Genesis 1 where we read, and God said, and then there are these ten words. And so it's like the Ten Commandments are these life-giving, new creation words of God forging this, this collection of slaves that were nobody into this royal priesthood, his people. And then he gives them the book of the covenant in Exodus 21 through 24. This initial deposit of, of law and revelation that shows them the way to live. And now he's giving them the instructions for his dwelling place. So just look at Exodus 25 verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary 
that I may dwell in their midst. Let them make me a holy place that I may dwell in their midst. That's what, that's what this whole section is about. So just as there are 10 times in Genesis 1 where it says, and God said, and then there are 10, 10 commandments, so also there are seven times in Genesis 1 where the Lord says the words, let there be, and it seems that those seven let there be statements are matched by the seven times the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 25 through 31. So 25.1, the Lord said to Moses. And then most of the, the, well, the other six really begin to come thick and fast in 30.11, uh, the Lord said to Moses. 30.17, the Lord said to Moses. 30.22, the Lord said to Moses. Verse 34 of chapter 30, the Lord said to Moses. 31.1, the Lord said to Moses. And then 31.12, the Lord said to Moses. So seven times the Lord said to Moses. And then interestingly, in the same way that the creation week ends with uh, the Lord resting on the seventh day, the end of this passage, 31, 12 through 17, is going to deal with the Sabbath day. So there's a, I, I don't want to suggest, I don't, I'm not fully convinced, I've, I've heard people try to argue that there's a kind of point-for-point -point correspondence between the, the days of creation and the instructions given here. I'm, I'm more comfortable with a loose correspondence. I think it's fascinating that there are these seven, the Lord said to Moses statements. And then also the last thing, well, almost the last thing before the Sabbath at the end of the passage is this focus on Aaron and his priestly garments in chapter 28. And then the consecration of Aaron and his sons as priests in chapter 29, which is kind of like day six when God made man and, and, and put the priest, as it were, into the cosmic temple when he put Adam into his creation. So I don't think there's a, a, a direct correspondence. I do think there's a loose correspondence between the creation week and uh, what we read here in the instructions for the tabernacle. Um, also, let me draw your attention to the way that in um, Exodus 24, 16, right before we start into this passage... We read, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So there's seventh day revelation here at the beginning of this passage. And then as we just saw at the end of 31, there's going to be another focus on the seventh day, the Sabbath. Uh, also related to this, I think, right above that in 2512, there's a reference to the tablets of stone with the law, I'm sorry, 2412, the tablets of stones with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction, the Lord says to Moses. And then that is what is given to Moses in 3118. He gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So Moses is going to go up on the mountain and he's going to be on the mountain for these 40 days and the Lord is going to speak out these instructions for the tabernacle. And then when Moses comes down off the mountain in Exodus 32, he's going to find what the people have been doing. Um, so I think that that's important for us to, no to note because it shows to us that while they are at Mount Sinai, the Sinai covenant is being broken. That's going to be an important thing to, to, to bear in mind that, that breaking of the covenant symbolized by Moses coming down the mountain and taking those two tablets and smashing them. 
No sooner does he get them than he smashes them in, in, in signification of the way the covenant has been broken. And then there are other indications in the Old Testament itself that this covenant is not an enduring, perpetual, everlasting covenant between God and his people. So I, I want you to be clear on what I'm saying here. God is giving to Israel these instructions for the tabernacle, and Moses is communicating to his audience, this is only to be in place for a certain period of time. How does he communicate that? Well, one, by the demonstration of the breaking of the covenant through the breaking of the, of the tablets. Two, in passages like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 28 through 32, Moses is going to prophesy of how the people are going to break the covenant and be driven into exile, which, which declares to them, you're going to break this covenant. And then in those passages, he says to them, after you've broken this Mosaic covenant, God is going to keep with you the covenant that he made with Abraham, with your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses is distinguishing between the Sinai covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. When, when we get later into the Old Testament, Jeremiah is going to talk about how the Lord's going to make a new covenant with, with his people, not like the covenant that he made with their fathers when he took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, the covenant that they broke. And then in the New Testament, of course, as we'll see, Lord willing, if we have time, uh, the new covenant is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant as outlined in Galatians 3 and practically the whole book of Hebrews. Here's, here's one of the reasons I'm telling you this. We're going to see over and over here in Exodus 25 through 31 statements about how this is a perpetual covenant forever. And what I'm telling you is Moses intends for his audience to understand that means as long as this covenant lasts between the Lord and Israel. That when, he, when he refers to a perpetual covenant for, throughout the generations of Israel forever, that means for as long as this covenant is in place. Because in other ways, he's telling them, this covenant is not going to last forever. Okay, now, again, before we dive into the text, just a couple of other observations about how the text is laid out. Um, first... In Exodus 25 through 27, if we were to read through this, we would not find reference to the tent of meeting. We would find reference to the tabernacle. So the word tabernacle is going to be used starting in Exodus 25.9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. And then you'll see it again in 26.1, and then um, 20, 26.15, and then a lot through there all the way through 2719. And then starting in 2720, which you notice is almost 28, chapter 28, in starting in 2721, we find reference to the tent of meeting. And, and from that point forward, from 2721 through the end of chapter 31, you get no references to the tabernacle. So that means that in the first couple of chapters, 25 through 27, Moses is going to call this the tabernacle. And then in chapter, starting in 27, 21 through the end of 31, he's going to call it the tent of meeting. Here's the significance of that, I think. It starts with 25, um, 8, let them make me a mikdash, a holy place, that I may dwell in their midst. And then there's, that's immediately followed by the reference to the mishkan, the tabernacle the place where he encamps, as it were. And, and I think the idea is they're building God's house, 
And then when they start calling it the tent of meeting, it's like the Lord is saying, I'm going to welcome you into my house. And we are going to fellowship together in my house. I think that's the significance of this change in usage, first referring to it to the ta- as the tabernacle, then referring to it as the tent of meeting. Similarly, uh, in the first part of this, this section, um, chapters 25 through 27, we're going to find these, these pattern statements. And I, I would just like to read through them with you all at once. So look with me at 25.9. We saw a reference to this in the New Testament reading in Hebrews. Exodus 25.9, the Lord says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now these repeated phrases about the pattern of the tabernacle are going to structure the text. They're going to stand as like punctuation marks at the end of units. And then there's another one at 25.40, verse 40 of chapter 25. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Now, before I read the next one, uh, it seems that the author of Hebrews suggests that Moses, when he was up on the mountain, was shown the heavenly tabernacle, the dwelling place of God in heaven. So that what is happening here is God is showing to Moses the kind of of tabernacle structure he lives in, in heaven, and then Moses is to make the tabernacle on earth analogously to what he has seen. And then the author of Hebrews proceeds to argue, it seems, that whereas the priests entered into the earthly tabernacle, say on the Day of Atonement, the Lord Jesus, after he was sacrificed, now the the priest would offer a sacrifice at the entrance of the tabernacle and then enter into it and then smear the blood on the altar and sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement to to cleanse uh, the tabernacle and the people. Jesus, by contrast, is crucified. He's sacrificed there. And then he enters into not the earthly tent, but the heavenly tabernacle, not made with hands, there offering his own blood, offering up himself and securing the eternal redemption that that the author of Hebrews describes. Uh, The next one of these pattern statements is in chapter 26, verse 30. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And then finally, 27, verse 8. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain. So you shall, it sh- so shall it be made. Before we go into the next kind of uh, significant statement, let me say that, that y- let me remind you of what we read there in Hebrews 9 earlier in the service, speaking of how the Lord Jesus, through his sacrifice, cleanses our conscience so that we can worship God. And if, if you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus, we want you to know that this is what is available to you. What's available to you is the great high priest of heaven having entered into the very presence of God in heaven, there to plead his own blood that he might redeem those who will turn from their sin and trust in him. If you're here and you are a believer, let me encourage you to let your mind lock onto this truth that Christ has cleansed you that he has 
achieved an everlasting salvation, an eternal redemption through the offering of his blood. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because of this. So we get these pattern statements in chapters 25 through 27. And then uh, following that, we get uh, these, uh, these statements about a statute for the generations of Israel forever. And the first of these comes in 27:21, the same verse that first mentions the tent of meeting. And these refer to Aaron and his sons. So let me read uh, 27, 21. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening, this is the, the oil for the lamp, from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So there's that language of statute forever throughout their generations that I would say that doesn't mean for all time, for the rest of human history, it means for as long as the Old Covenant is in place. And we'll see uh, why this is significant at the end of the passage. Look then at um, chapter, the next one of these is chapter 28, verse 43. Look at that, that verse there. That verse says, And they shall be on Aaron, this is speaking of the high priest's garments, and his sons, when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die, this shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. So offspring is another way to refer to the generations that are going to follow from Aaron. You see it again in 27.9, in the middle of the verse. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Now, I, I want to observe here. He says the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. This is not in conflict with what the author of Hebrews says about how the Aaronic priesthood is replaced by the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus, who is a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And the reason it doesn't contradict that is because of what I've been saying about how Moses is showing us this covenantal arrangement that I'm saying is a statute forever means for as long as this covenant is in place. But as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7, 11, and 12, when there is a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law as well. And then he goes on to talk about how Jesus is the guarantor of a new covenant. So new covenant, new law, new priesthood when, when Christ brings about the new covenant. Um, the last of these um, statute um, forever for Aaron's generations statements comes in chapter 30, verse 10. There's kind of a, brief, a briefer one in, in 29, 28. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due. You could translate that as a statute forever. And then in um, chapter 30, verse 10, we read, um, there's a reference to throughout your generations in 30, verse 10. And then 30, 21, sorry, that's the last one. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. Okay, so uh, these phrases I'm suggesting to you, the patterns in 25 through 27, and then the statute forever throughout the generations in 27 through 31 are marking uh, our, our units of thought. Now, now that we've sort of uh, previewed those things, 
let's, let's dive in and, and, and um, make our way through some of these sections. So we begin in chapter 25, and let's, let's work through 25, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. And I would just note here, the contribution is going to come from the plunder of Egypt. And there's a, there's a magnificent uh, pattern here. Because in the same way that the Israelites at the Exodus plundered the Egyptians, and then the Lord invited them to use the plunder of Egypt to build the tabernacle, similarly, David is going to uh, plunder his enemies, and he wants to build a temple, but the Lord says, you've got too much blood on your hands. You're too unclean. And so David takes the plunder of his enemies from all his victories, and he stores it up for Solomon. And then Solomon uses the wealth of the nations, the plunder of David's enemies, in the building of the temple. And then the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 talks essentially about how the Lord Jesus has plundered the enemy. And, and he, has, uh, he, he quotes Psalm 68, which I think is talking about this pattern that we see at the Exodus and then at the building of the temple. And he talks about how the Lord has received these gifts and then given these gifts, which is what's happening here. The Lord is receiving the contribution, and then the tabernacle service is given to Israel. And then, similarly, at David's time, they're going to receive the plunder of the enemies, and then they're going to be given the temple. And then the Lord Jesus is going to bind the strong man and plunder his house and then use those whom he takes, those whom he has ransomed for God, for himself, and he's going to, to build a house for God's name, the, the church. This, is, I think, is what it, Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4. So this is who we are, and this is where we live. We live in God's cosmic temple, and we are being built up as a holy dwelling place for God to, to offer praise for his name. So they, they take a contribution. Verse 2 continues, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. And now we're going to go through all these materials, and it starts with gold, and as we work through the passage... At the start of the passage, everything is gold. The, the Ark of the Covenant is overlaid with gold. The mercy seat is overlaid with gold. The, the table of showbread is overlaid with gold. The lampstand is overlaid with gold. Uh, the, the tabernacle has these clasps of gold. But then once we get to the, the tent structure, then we move into things that are going to be mentioned right after the gold in 25.3. Gold, silver, and bronze... And we start seeing silver things in, in 26, uh, 19, 40 bases of silver, and then all these bases for these frames that are going to hold up the curtains of the tabernacle are going to be made of silver, and some other things are as well. So 25.3 mentions gold, silver, and bronze. We first run into bronze at the end of 26.37. We're, we're going to have bases of bronze, but then starting in chapter 27, we're going to have this bronze altar. And th th here, I think, too, there's a kind of subtle point of contact with creation because it's as though, it's as though God is calling the elements into being and, and making the world. And then, you know, 
what happens to bronze over time is it turns green. And, and the bronze altar is going to be outside the tent, in the, at the doors of the tent. And it's as though everything in the tent is, is gold. And, and um, back in uh, the, the creation narrative, we read of, of the Garden of Eden that there are these precious stones there. There's gold in Havilah. You know, the, the land of that gold was good, this kind of reference. And it's almost as though the, the holy place and the holy of holies, everything there is gold. And then as you move outward, you, you descend the scale of precious metals because you're moving away from the presence of God. And when you get out of the direct presence of God, it's almost like you, you enter into the green fields with the reference to the bronze altar and, and other things that, that you're going to find. Uh, then verse 4 of Exodus 25, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And if you look at 26.1, we read, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Now I think the blue and the purple are meant to connote the 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 depiction of the heavens, the way that the skies look. And, and you can think of the way that when the sun sets, there's often uh, purple and, and different shades of, of color that we see in the heavens. And it's as though the tabernacle, the tent, is, is a depiction of the, the skies that God has built into the world. Did you notice that the psalmist picked up on this in, in Psalm 104 when he said, you spread out the heavens like a tent curtain. And he uses the same language that, that is going to be used to describe the curtains of the tabernacle. And then we read of in, in 28.5, I'm sorry, 25.5, of tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood. That acacia wood is going to be used for the Ark of the Covenant. 25.10, they shall make an ark of acacia wood, and, and so forth. And then verse 6, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. This is anticipating the making of the garments of the high priest. And then verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary, a holy place, that I may dwell in their midst. What's happening here is Israel is, giving, is being given another opportunity to walk with God in the cool of the day. When, they were when the man and the woman were driven out of the Garden of Eden, they lost access to God's presence. But now God is saying, make me this holy place that I may dwell in your midst, and it will be once again like it was in the garden. And then verse 9 has that pattern statement that we already read. Let me just quickly run through what is, is made here. So I've already alluded to the way that 25.10 and following speaks of uh, the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Notice how in verse 16, it's referred to as the Ark. Uh, well, it says in 25.16, you shall put into the Ark the testimony that I shall give you. And that's a reference to those two tablets of stone. And this is why the Ark is going to be referred to as the Ark of the Testimony, because it contains uh, God's testimony. After the description of the Ark, 25.17 through uh, 22, uh, tells us about the, the mercy seat. And, and this mercy seat is going to have these two cherubim that overshadow it. And, and one wing touches one wall of the Holy of Holies, and the other wing touches uh, the, the, the wing of the, uh, the corresponding cherubim on the other side, whose, whose 
other wing stretches to the other uh, tent curtain. And um, this is, I think, meant to recall the way that God put a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life back in Genesis 3 when the man and woman were driven out. There are also going to be cherubim woven into uh, the tent curtains, as you see in 26.1. You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. All those cherubim are reminders that God is present here. And and this is to instill an appropriate sense of fear and caution lest they presume and find themselves struck dead with God's holiness breaking out against them. Um, And then God is conceived of as enthroned above the cherubim, with the Ark of the Covenant as his footstool. So what we're reading about here, the Holy of Holies, is like the throne room of the king. And notice what he says in 25, 22. He says, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So in some real sense, God is present there, and God will reveal himself to his people as he speaks to them. And then we, we, we then move to the table of the showbread in 25, 23 and following. It's overlaid with gold, and notice how 25, 30 says, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. I think this bread is meant to recall not only the manna from heaven that they've eaten in the wilderness, but also the abundant food of the Garden of Eden. And it points to the way that that God will provide for his people. And then the lampstand in 2531 through 40. And this lampstand, you read through this, and it really reads as though it's a tree with branches. And, And I didn't know what a calyx was. Maybe there are flower people here who know what calyxes are. I looked up the word calyx. You see the word calyx if you're looking at the ESV. For instance, um, oh, oh, where it's in verse 31, for instance. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers. And a calyx is a particular part of a flower petal. Um, and, and so th- this, this lampstand... I think, is meant to point back to those sacred trees in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. And then um, after that, we, we, we get the tent curtains and we get their dimensions. And um, I want to I pass over really uh, most of, well, all of uh, the rest of chapter 26. And, and then in chapter 27, we read about the altar, the bronze altar, that is going to go outside the tent. Uh, starting in 27.9, we read about the, the court of the tabernacle. And um, then in, at the end of 27, we read about the oil for the lamp um, that will burn continually, that the priests are to go into the holy place uh, and tend these lamps morning and evening and, and maintain um, the, the light there in the holy place. And that brings us to chapter 28, which, um, which takes us to the, the garments of the priests. But let me just say a word of application about Exodus 25 through 27 and what I think Moses intends his audience, which includes us, 
to, to, to discern, to learn from this passage. When we think about the world, we should not primarily think of or only think of things like atoms and neutrons and protons and uh, electric charges and, and evolving states of matter, changing... St- that, that's not the way that I think Moses wants us to think about the world. When we think of the world, when we think of this setting for our lives... We should think in these terms. This is God's cosmic temple. God made this place as the setting in which he would reveal himself to his people and be known by them and be served by them. So as we try to take our thoughts captive to the knowledge of Christ, this includes how you think about your lawn or how you think about the street where you live or how you think about the baseball field, at the local park where your kids play. You should be thinking in terms of, this is God's cosmic temple. And I was put here to rule and subdue and to honor the Lord in the way that I relate to this created world because it is his dwelling place. So this has implications for how we think about creation care and those kinds of things. Uh, But they're not the implications that are worldly implications. They're implications that have to do with our identity as as priests in God's cosmic temple. And thus we come to Aaron in, in Exodus 28. Now, let me just drop in and start reading here in Exodus 28, verse 1 and following. It says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel, bring him near. You know, they, they offered up this contribution, this stuff that was brought to the Lord. Now they're bringing up these people. Verse 2, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. That's going to be repeated down in 2840. You shall make them for glory and beauty. 28.3, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill. This is anticipating the way that Bezalel and Aholiab will be filled with skill and wisdom for the making of all these things over in chapter 31. That they, continue in 28.3, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. So the same stuff that was received for the building of the tabernacle is received for the making of Aaron's priestly garments. And then as we, dis- as we read about the, the making of the garments, there are a lot of similarities between the way that the garments are to be constructed and the way the tabernacle was to be constructed. Which leads to the conclusion that what you have in Aaron is like a walking depiction of the tabernacle. When, he, when, the, when the high priest is clothed as the high priest, he is a walking depiction of the tabernacle. This has massive implications because there would come one whose mission it was to fulfill the high priesthood of Israel, and he would say to those who challenged him, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. And I think one of the reasons that people eventually figured out what he was talking about was because of this connection between the high priest of Israel and the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle. If the high priest is a walking depiction of the tabernacle, well, then it makes sense for Jesus to present himself as the true temple of God. 
Uh, it's also fascinating the way that Aaron is to bear the names of Israel. Look at 25, 12. You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. This kind of idea is repeated down in verse 29 where it says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And then it's not just the names of the people that Aaron bears. At the end of verse 30, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So in some sense, and and we're going to see this as we continue here, in some sense, the judgment due to the people of Israel is accruing to Aaron. And as he enters into the holy place and then into the holy of holies, he's bearing their names and bearing their judgment. And then look at what 28 verse 38 says, speaking of the the, the frontispiece of, of his headgear, which says holy to the Lord on it. It says in 28 38, it shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. So Aaron is is to bear their names, he's to bear their judgment, and then he's to bear their guilt as he goes before the Lord. And then as he he is consecrated to serve as priest, um, look at at 2841, where it says, speaking of the garments and the the headgear, it says, you shall put them on Aaron, your brother. And... um, Um, The word for put them on here is the same word used to describe the Lord making garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothing them with those garments of skin back in Genesis 3.21. And you might think, well, that doesn't seem that significant. But that word, this particular Hebrew word, is like only used in these two contexts, maybe one other place. And, And in fact, that one other place is with reference to Joseph. So Adam and Eve are clothed this way. Joseph, who's a pretty significant figure, is clothed this way. And then the high priest is clothed this way. But it forges a connection between Adam and Eve in the garden and the high priest of Israel. And look at what these garments are to do in verse 42. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. So the Lord covered the nakedness of of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And now he's covering the nakedness of his priests. Look at, look at verse 41 again in chapter 28. You shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them. You know, the only, the only people in all of the Pentateuch who are, that, that Israel is instructed to anoint is the high priest, Aaron and his son. Those are the only people anointed. Aaron and his sons are the only people anointed in the, in the Pentateuch. Anoint them. And then it goes on, verse 41, and ordain them. And the word ordain, it, it, it translates a phrase, you shall fill their hands. And it's, it's as though they're taking the implements for worship at the temple and they're, put, they're filling Aaron's hands with the implements that he's going to use to do the work of, of ministering as a priest between God and his people. So ordination is about filling the hands for the work. That's what, that's what it's about here. And then consecrate them, set them apart as holy, that they may serve me as priests. Um, 
look over now at chapter 29, where they're going to offer these sacrifices for the consecration of the priests. And what happens here is just fascinating. So, so look at, let's start reading in 29.10. Uh, this is going to be a sin offering, we're told, at the end of verse 14 of chapter 29. 29.10, you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. And we talked about this uh, last week. When they, when they offer a sacrifice, they put their, their hand on the head of the sacrificial animal. They lean on the animal. And it's as though their guilt and their sin is transferred to the animal. And then the animal vicariously dies in place of the worshiper. And then verse 11, you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And shall take part of the blood of the bull... And put it on the horns of the altar. So you've, you've got this tent set up, which is like, shaped like a shoebox. You know, it's a rectangle. And at the entrance of the rectangle, you've got this bronze altar. And they take part of the blood and put it on... And, and the altar has these horns that come up at its four corners. They put part of the blood on the horns of the altar. And then it, it says um, in verse 12 there... With your finger and the rest of the blood, blood you pour out at the base of the altar. So they put part on the horns. They pour the rest of it on the base. And then there's going to be another sacrifice. Verse 15, you shall take one of the rams and Aaron shall, and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Okay, so horns, base, and sides of the altar uh, receive blood, and, and we talked last week about how what this does is, as, as Leviticus 17.11 says, the life of the body is in the blood, and the blood is given for the making of atonement, and so it's like the guilt of the people, and the guilt of the, the high priest in this case, is being transferred to the altar itself. But look at what it goes on to say. Look at 29.19. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram... Verse 20, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron. It's almost like Aaron's ear is the horn of the altar. It's almost like Aaron is a representative of the altar. And, and the, the guilt is being put on his ear and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their feet and throw the rest of the blood against the signs of the altar. I mean, it's almost like Horns of the altar, ears, thumbs, side of the altar, and then the, the big toe of the right foot, base of the altar. It's, there's this correspondence between the way that the altar receives the blood and then the way that the, the high priest and his sons receive the blood, which again sets us up for someone who's going to say, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it. Someone of whom it will be said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So Aaron, this walking depiction of the tabernacle, and, and this representative living depiction of the, the altar, the bronze altar of sacrifice, Aaron is typifying for us the Lord Jesus, even as, in various ways, Aaron points back to Adam, as we saw, the way that he's clothed, the way that his nakedness is covered. So Aaron is like a new Adam, and then Jesus 
is like a new Adam, Aaron. And, and, and what we have is this, this glorious depiction of the fulfillment of the, all these things in Christ. We're, we're going to have to come back next week and look, look some more at chapters 30 and 31. I'm not going to be able to finish. Um, but as we close today, let me draw your attention to some statements made by the author of Hebrews. And I want to start right where our New Testament reading ended. So in Hebrews 9, 15, the author says, after that passage that we read, he says, therefore of Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I didn't, I didn't draw attention. Uh, actually, it's going to come in chapter 30. That's why I didn't draw attention to it. There, there are going to be these references to this ransom and this atonement that is made. And I think the author of Hebrews is, is recalling those when he speaks of this redemption that, that, that Jesus has accomplished of his people. Also, as I alluded to earlier, the author of Hebrews will say in Hebrews 7, 11, and 12, um, he says in Hebrews 7, 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? So you can hear how he's arguing. He's saying... If the order of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, was intended by God to last forever, Psalm 110 never would have been written. We would have needed no other priest. But the fact that Psalm 110 was written shows that we needed a, a priest who could bring about perfection. And then Hebrews 7:12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And then as I alluded to, 7:22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And then finally, look with me at Hebrews chapter 8. And, and I just want to read through this here. Hebrews 8.1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. I mean, it's as, it's as though Jesus is the high priest and and. There's this wonderful dramatic depiction of the undoing of the exile from Eden. So when, when they left, when they were driven out of Eden, they were moving eastward. You, you keep reading those references to how they, they moved eastward, going out of Eden. But as they go, the, the, the tabernacle faces east. So as the priests enter into the tabernacle and then enter the Holy of Holies, they're moving westward. It's like they're going back into God's presence. And it's as though the high priest, Jesus, has not only entered into the heavenly Holy of Holies, he's taken his seat there, which is stunning. No one else would be invited to do this. No one else could take up a seat at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Verse 2, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. We're not talking about the earthly tabernacle. We're talking about this heavenly tabernacle. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow 
of the heavenly things. The author of Hebrews is saying, the stuff that we're reading about in Exodus 25 through 29, this is a copy and shadow of the heavenly reality. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. This is where we live. We live as as members of the church. We live in God's temple that he is building. We live in God's cosmic world that he has promised to redeem and renew, and he will make all things new. And this is who we are. We are those who have been made into a kingdom and priests. So as you think about your identity, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Conceive of yourself as a priest who is offering yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Conceive of yourself as a living stone being built up into a holy dwelling place for the Lord. Someone who has access to the holy of holies because there Christ is seated, having achieved his eternal redemption. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for revealing these things to us. We confess that they're, they're better than we could ever imagine. They're beyond our imagination. And Lord, we pray that, that you would cause the scriptures to grip us. Lord, we pray that you would do a miracle in us that results in us being people who eagerly study passages like Exodus 25 through 31 so that we can better understand passages like Hebrews 8, 1 through 13, so that we can know what what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 2, what John is talking about in John 2, so that we can know who we are and where we live, so that we can know what you intended this world to be. Lord, we pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. And then, Lord, we pray that you would make us those who, by the power of your Spirit, through the gift of faith, bring forth the fruits of the Holy Spirit as faith works by love and as we fulfill the law and love one another. Lord, we ask that you do this for the glory of your great name. We pray that you would sanctify us by your glory. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus in whom all these things are fulfilled. Amen.